When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. As always, if you have questions, comments, or corrections, feel free to contact me at CassusBellyGuy at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback from listeners, and I try to be prompt in my replies. In this episode, we will finish the Aleutian Islands campaign, that weird backburner campaign whose major engagements took place just as American troops were landing in the New Georgia archipelago and as Allied forces were descending on Sicily. Though not as impactful as the Solomons campaign or as star-studded as Operation Husky, the Aleutians campaign was still a major commitment on the part of the U.S. military and worth discussing. I also want to make a quick note about nomenclature. In this episode, I'll be referring to Army Infantry Battalions a lot, so I want to make sure everyone is clear on how I refer to them. Let's take the 1st Battalion, 17th Infantry Regiment as an example. Typically, in Army terms, regiments are referred to by their number and type. So the 17th Infantry is referring to the 17th Infantry Regiment, kind of like how all Marine regiments are just called Marines. The battalion number is just referred to as 1st, 2nd, or 3rd, since battalions are numbered within their regiment. Sometimes, though, they're simply referred to by their number designation. So instead of saying 1st of the 17th, I'll just say the 117 Infantry, or simply 117. I know it's a bit inconsistent, but that's also just the way people actually refer to units in the Army. So who am I to change that? Plus, it lets me have a little bit of variety when referring to the same battalion over and over again. Anyway, let's begin episode 46, Battle of the Backwater. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? On the morning of May 11, 1943, 11,000 troops were staged at sea for the assault on Atu Island. The first men ashore were those of the 7th Scout Company, who paddled to the beach before dawn from their submarines. At 3 in the morning, the first troops from Narwhal waded in, followed by the men from the Nautilus at 05. The remainder of the company were much delayed when their transport, the USS Kane, could not find the landing beach for several hours. They came ashore amidst the frigid pre-dawn surf at Scarlet Beach nine miles northwest of the overall objective, Chickagoff Harbor. Their first task after the landing was to determine whether the beach was suitable for a larger landing with more troops and equipment. Theirs was the northern and westernmost landing point. The eastern half of Atu Island is shaped a bit, if you really squint, 
like a clover turned on its side, with three peninsulas emerging from the landmass towards the northeast, east, and southeast. The primary settlement and location of Japanese defense was on the northern tip of the central peninsula, where Chickagoff Harbor lies. The other piece of valuable real estate lay at the southern tip of Holtz Bay, where an airstrip had been constructed. Rather than assault Chickagoff Harbor or the airstrip directly, landings would take place at four locations, two in the north at Red and Scarlet Beaches, and two in the south in the mouth of Massacre Bay at Yellow and Blue Beaches. The idea was to land in relatively unopposed beaches where uncontested supply lines could be established to approach the Japanese defenders from the rear. Unopposed at Scarlet Beach, the scouts quickly moved inland, where they were to assess their second objective, the feasibility of the approach on Holtz Bay from the north. At noon, the 7th Division's reconnaissance troop came ashore at Scarlet Beach and joined up with the scouts, forming a provisional battalion. By roughly 1500, the provisional battalion had formed up at the head of the valley leading to Holtz Bay and were nominally prepared to support the landings at Red Beach. But after a full day of trudging through rough terrain in dreadful conditions, the men of the provisional battalion were absolutely spent. At 9.30 in the morning, eight landing craft came ashore at Red Beach. They carried another reconnaissance element, composed partially of Aleut scouts. Their task was to determine the suitability of Beach Red for a larger landing. They never got word back to higher headquarters, however, so it was up to the USS Bell to ride in close to report on surf conditions. Determining them to be calm enough to debark men and supplies, the 1st Battalion, 17th Infantry, which had been waiting on word on whether to land at Scarlet or Red, went ashore at Red. Having spent the day waiting for word from the scouts, it was already 1,500 by the time a decision had been reached, and men began to be put ashore. Given the awful weather conditions, many landing craft became lost in the fog, and destroyers had to patrol the area off of Holtz Bay to gather up errant landing craft. It wasn't until well after dark that the final troops were landed. As soon as the men of the 1st of the 17th Infantry came ashore, they were greeted by a rock-studded beach and a 200-foot escarpment that overlooked the whole landing zone, only 75 yards from the high tide line. Identifying this piece of key terrain, the men began moving inland to seize it. Though they found no resistance at the beach, they soon began taking Japanese fire at 1800 from Hill X. Unable to overcome both the conditions and the enemy, 1st of the 17th Infantry halted short of the hill. As the men were wading ashore in the northern beaches, the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 17th Infantry were busy landing in the south, on the shores of Massacre Bay at Yellow and Blue Beaches. After landing, they began moving inland toward their first day's objectives, and themselves came under enemy fire at roughly 1900. 317 Infantry, whose objective was Jarman Pass, failed to dislodge the defenders. Still, by 9.30pm, 3,500 men of the 7th Infantry Division had landed. 400 at Scarlet Beach, 1,100 at Red Beach, and 2,000 between Blue and Yellow Beaches, including General Brown, the division commander. All things considered, he would not have been considered well off the mark if he thought the situation was well in hand and the Japanese would be swept off the island in only another day or two. After all, he had a whole other regiment prepared to land the next day, and the 4th Infantry Regiment held in reserve by General Buckner, should he need it. As bad as their losses were on the first day, they may well have been worse if it were not for the unrelenting fog that forever shrouded the island. Despite lingering off the shore for hours, the Japanese had no idea an invasion was underway until 3 in the afternoon. This meant they only began emerging from their cave shelters after the Americans were already beginning to land at their primary assault beaches. Colonel Yasuyo Yamazaki, the defending garrison commander, 
had no intention of defeating them at the water's edge, though. His men had dug defensive positions in the high ground, about three to 4,000 yards from the waterline. The next day, the weather was just as awful, but the men on land were able to spot naval gunfire, and aviation support was able to be brought to bear. The 14-inch guns of the USS Pennsylvania were fired on targets in the west arm of Holtz Bay, just south of Hill X. Following the naval bombardment, at just before noon, aerial bombardment commenced against targets in the same area. The bombers met heavier-than-expected anti-aircraft fire, so additional 14-inch naval gunfire was requested to suppress the AA positions. This time, the USS Idaho let loose 48 rounds of high explosive. It's unclear whether the positions were destroyed in the bombardment, but Idaho would be busy again later in the day. In the north, 117 Infantry pressed their assault on the Japanese defenders in the vicinity of Hill X, and with the help of 200 rounds of 14-inch gunfire from the USS Idaho, managed to take the crest of the hill. Though the defenders still held the reverse slope, and attempted several times to throw the Americans off the top, progress was being made. While they were advancing, reinforcements from the 3rd Battalion 32nd Infantry were landing on Beach Red. Their landings, while interrupted by artillery fire and abysmal conditions, managed to get a whole additional battalion on the ground. The southern elements experienced problems of their own on May 12th. For one, the thick mud and muskeg made trucks almost useless, as they bogged down almost immediately. This forced commanders to assign a disproportionate number of men to labor duties, rather than to taking the actual objectives. So much so, that the landing force commander requested that Admiral Rockwell land his reserve troops to help with the extra labor demand. Rockwell was a bit nervous about this, as there were still transports unloading in Massacre Bay, and feared submarine attack. Once the transports were emptied, he released the reserves, but in that time, a torpedo was spotted heading towards the Pennsylvania. Luckily, evasive action succeeded and avoided being struck. Farther inland, the going was slow against the entrenched defenders overlooking Jarman Pass. Frontal attacks proved fruitless in gaining ground, while casualties mounted. After several attempts, little progress was made, and the forward line of troops had hardly changed on the second day. Both battalions, the 217 and 317 infantry, had been pinned down by effective machine gun fire as they attempted to dislodge the defenders from the high ground. That night, the first casualty reports came in. In two days of fighting, 44 officers and men had been killed. The 13th of May transpired much as the previous day had. 217 and 317, now aided by 2nd Battalion 32nd Infantry, continued to beat their heads against the wall in the vicinity of Jarman Pass, and at the end of the day, the forward line of troops had changed little. In the north, 117 Infantry held onto Hill X, and beat back several Japanese attempts to shove them off the top of the hill, but themselves made no further progress. Overnight shelling had slowed 332nd Infantry's unloading progress, but by day's end, they were in the fight as well, moving up to support 117 Infantry. There was some progress made in establishing artillery positions at least. Japanese fires had prevented the artillery in the north from establishing and offering fire support to 117, but with the aid of naval gunfire, the Japanese guns were silenced long enough for the American artillery to occupy firing positions. On May 14th, General Brown decided to try to make a combined attack on Jarman Pass from the north and south. The Provisional Battalion, which had landed at Scarlet Beach and had been held up in the hills behind Hill X, was to make its way south and attack Jarman Pass from the rear. 117 Infantry and 332nd Infantry were to finish driving the Japanese from Hill X and support the Provisional Battalion. The Southern forces were to continue their assaults up the Massacre Valley. Unfortunately, 
none of this happened. The provisional battalion remained fixed, and 117 Infantry was unable to finish the job on Hill X. So yet another day passed with essentially no progress being made. Despite naval fire support and aerial bombardment, the Japanese remained stubbornly in place. General Brown was beginning to consider calling on the reserves held by General Buckner. Three days had passed, and none of the division's objectives had been realized. The 15th of May offered frustrations like those of the past several days. Unloading activities in the northern sector at Red Beach remained frustrated by beach conditions as well as Japanese indirect fire. Attacks at Hill X and up the Massacre Valley were launched late due to thick fog reducing visibility to mere feet. There was one bright spot, however. Around 1000, the fog lifted and it became clear that the enemy, which had been blocking the provisional battalion, had withdrawn to Moor Ridge, which runs between the northern and eastern cloverleafs. With nothing stopping them, the provisional battalion advanced on the ridge and called for close air support to help suppress the defenders. The relatively clear conditions proved to be as much of a hindrance as an asset, however. The long lines of visibility allowed the defenders on Moor Ridge to deliver effective fire on advancing Americans who were quickly fixed. To make matters worse, some of the close air support dropped their bombs on friendly positions. The provisional battalion would halt short of Moore's Ridge by the day's end. In the southern sector, essentially no progress was made once again. At 11.40 a.m., another torpedo attack was spotted and successfully avoided, but the pressure was mounting withdraw the ships from the bay. That afternoon, General Brown went aboard the Pennsylvania to conference with Admiral Rockwell. He pleaded for more men and construction equipment, arguing that all available forces had already been committed and were insufficient to secure the island. The comments from the meeting were forwarded to Admiral Kincaid and General Buckner and General DeWitt back on ADAC. Kincaid was particularly concerned with allowing his ships to continue to linger off the island. There were reports of a Japanese fleet approaching to drive off the invasion force. Given the lack of progress on the island and the looming threat of the Japanese fleet, the commanders agreed it was time to find a replacement, so General Brown was sacked. On May 16th, after five days of fighting in miserable semi-Arctic conditions, the tide finally began to turn. The Provisional Battalion continued its advance on Moor Ridge and managed to seize a foothold at the center of the crest, allowing them to leverage fires on the entire length of it. At the same time, 117 and 332 Infantry found that the enemy had withdrawn from their sector as well, and so moved to secure landing sites near Moor Ridge in order to significantly reduce the length of their supply lines. In the southern sector, a similar change of fortune had occurred. The Japanese defending Jarman Pass and blocking the Massacre Valley had themselves withdrawn, allowing the Americans to advance northward for the first time since they landed. These withdrawals in the northern and southern sectors did not mean the Americans advanced uncontested, however. There were still numerous small engagements, and observers continued to call in naval gunfire as well as close air support. Naval aviation from the USS Nassau, as well as Army aviation, carried out sorties throughout the day on various targets across the island. B-24s were also used to resupply forces in the vicinity of Beach Red. At 10 in the evening, Major General Eugene Landrum arrived and assumed the role of landing force commander. He took command at an auspicious moment. The night before, the Japanese had chosen to withdraw to the inner cordon around the town of Atu itself, at the eastern tip of the eastern cloverleaf on the shore of Chickagoff Harbor. General Brown's request for reinforcements was also heeded, so more men would soon be arriving to relieve those who had already been in the cold, wet, miserable conditions for the better part of a week. The fighting was far from over, however. 
the advance on Attu and Chickagoff Harbor would be grueling. On 17 and 18 May, 1st of the 17th Infantry and 3rd of the 32nd Infantry would clear the remainder of the defenders around Holtz Bay, where the number one cause of casualties was not enemy fire, but rather frostbite by a ratio of 2 to 1. By the end of the 18th, the northern and southern sectors were able to link up in Jarman Pass. Progress would continue at its glacial pace for the next five days, where fighting was characterized by exhausting advances on Japanese machine gun nests dug into hillsides or ridgelines, and wet or even snowy conditions. The higher the elevation, the worse the weather, where driving snow and biting wind were just as much of a hindrance as the actual enemy. The rough terrain also made positioning artillery difficult. In many places, the ground was too rough, but where it was flat enough, the ground was generally a soft muck that was best avoided. On May 27th, American forces had reached the town of Atu itself, but the Japanese continued their dogged resistance. An area known as the Fishhook region was captured that day when five companies climbed a 60-degree incline to enter and clear it in detail at extremely close quarters and savage fighting, repeatedly using grenades, rifle butts, and bayonets. On the 29th, the defenders would launch a massive counterattack of roughly 700 to 1,000 men down the Chickagoff Valley in an attempt to take Jarman Pass and wreak havoc in the American rear area. They threw everything they had left into the effort and quickly overran the 317 Infantry defensive positions, assaulting the battalion as well as the regimental command posts in the lowland near Serrano Bay. They managed to cut all the telephone wires in their path, severely impacting command and control in the immediate area as well. General Landrum was forced to commit the division reserve to halt and repel the counterattack. The reserves were successful in stopping the advance, killing over a hundred of them, while scattering the rest in disorganized bands that continued to harass American forces and had to themselves be cleared in detail. The next day, the counterattacking force made one last thrust that was easily halted. 317 Infantry killed at least 50 of them in repelling their assault. Meanwhile, the main effort continued to drive on Chickagoff Harbor and made it all the way to the waterline. By this time, the Japanese forces were spent. The counterattack had consumed nearly all of the rest of his combat power, and despite some initial success, it proved fruitless. Though some small pockets had to be cleared out, the fighting was all but over by May 30th. There were some aerial attacks on the ships supporting the invasion, but they proved ineffectual as well. All told, American forces suffered 549 men killed and 1,148 wounded, along with 2,100 non-battle casualties, mostly trench foot and cold weather injuries, out of the total attacking force of 15,000. A total of 2,351 Japanese corpses were found, though it's presumed several hundred were either never recovered or were buried by their comrades during the battle. Only 28 Japanese prisoners were taken. Following the battle, the engineers determined that the site of the airfield near the east arm of Holtz Bay was rather poorly chosen, and so abandoned it to build a new airfield at a more advantageous location. The Atu operation, though largely forgotten today, was a uniquely miserable campaign. American soldiers had to face a tough, determined enemy dug into difficult terrain in the most miserable weather imaginable. For three weeks, they suffered biting cold, fierce winds, driving rain, and even wet snow at times. The Japanese fought with their characteristic tenacity, engaging in brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat and fighting to the last man. All of this for a tiny spit of nearly inhospitable land on the far northern periphery of both the United States and Japanese empires. The battle did yield some good data for American planners, however. It was clear from battle damage assessment 
that naval gunfire was not particularly effective at destroying dug-in fighting positions. It was, however, extremely effective at suppressing the enemy. The few captured Japanese, along with the documents discovered, attested to the devastating effect naval gunfire could have on the morale of soldiers it was directed against. Hence, its major suppressive effect. It's hard to man a machine gun or dial in an artillery piece when a 1,400-pound slab of high explosive is detonating anywhere near you and you know more is coming your way. It also had a demonstrable if positive effect on friendly morale. I guess something about the roar of 14-inch guns flying toward the enemy was comforting to the infantry. When combined with aerial support, naval gunfire could provide sufficient cover to allow friendly units to maneuver relatively unharassed and with only minor casualties. Due to the extreme nature of the weather and terrain, enormous amounts of ordnance were used for relatively little material destruction. Naval vessels from destroyers to battleships fired hundreds of rounds each to achieve suppression. The infantry still had to fight through and clear their enemies out. One small luxury soldiers on Atu received was hot food. Since the supply lines from beachhead to the forward line of troops were so short for so much of the battle, landing craft were able to deliver two hot meals a day for 1,200 troops, consisting of coffee, cocoa, beans, and chili. Obviously, not every soldier was able to enjoy the simple pleasures of a hot meal, especially those who were farther from the beachheads. But 2,400 hot meals a day is nothing to sneeze at. In cold, wet conditions like those on Atu, a simple hot meal can go a long way to improving a man's fighting spirit. The battle for Atu ended up being one of the most grueling the U.S. military would fight in the entire war. In terms of raw numbers, it cost 71 American casualties to inflict 100 on the enemy, second only to Iwo Jima in exchange rate. In light of that fact, it's unclear to me how to judge General Brown. It's true that after six days of fighting, he had achieved remarkably little, but he had invaded an incredibly rugged and unforgiving island against a prepared and motivated enemy. Sure, General Landrum began seeing success almost as soon as he took command, but to me that just seems like a bit of bad luck on Brown's part. The Americans weren't the only ones suffering from the extreme subarctic conditions on the island. After six days of relentless aerial, naval, and infantry assault, the Japanese must have been exhausted. Sure, they had beaten back numerous assaults, but we have to assume that they sustained heavy casualties and had expended significant ammunition in that time. By the time Brown was thrown out and Landrum brought in, the Japanese probably had little left to throw at the Americans and thus withdrew to a tighter perimeter with shorter supply lines from their headquarters in the town of Atu. Had Brown been left in charge for another 48 hours, his fortunes would certainly have turned around, just like they did for Landrum. It's also hard to say what he should have done differently. Atu had very limited landing beaches and even more limited avenues of approach. Even if the island were dry and the weather pleasant, it would have been a nightmare to assault. Add in snow and rain and that deplorable muskeg, and your problems are only compounded. Given all of that, I think history should be kind to General Brown. There was little else he could have done with the situation he was handed, and impatience on the part of his leadership led to undue embarrassment for him. Having secured Atu and getting a functional airfield operational by June 9th, it was time to prepare the invasion of Kiska. Admiral Kincaid and General Charles Corlett, the ground forces commander for Kiska, did not want this invasion to suffer the same problems and setbacks as that on Atu, so made a few corrections. First, they made sure they were outfitted with proper cold weather gear and footwear. Intelligence estimated the Japanese garrison at about 10,000 men, four times the number present on Atu, so significantly more troops, 
roughly 30,000 American and 5,500 Canadian were assigned to the invasion. In addition, the island was subjected to significant pre-invasion bombardment. In the time between the occupation of Atu and the landing in August, 424 tons of bombs were dropped on the island by the 11th Air Force, and 330 tons of shells were lobbed into it from the sea. The pilots flying over Kiska did notice a distinct lack of activity. Two possible explanations were offered. Either the Japanese had evacuated the island, or they had taken to the hills to conduct a defense in depth. American planners decided to carry out the invasion anyway. If the Japanese were still there, they would need to be rooted out. If they were not, then the landing forces would still get valuable experience in conducting a full-scale rehearsal of an amphibious operation. On August 15, 1943, over 100 ships assembled off the western coast of Kiska. Luckily for the invasion force, the usual dense fog had lifted and relatively calm, clear conditions prevailed during the landings. The soldiers did not encounter any resistance as they unloaded, and by 1600, 6500 troops had debarked. For the veterans of Atu, this was not reassuring. They had seen a similar lack of activity at the beaches in the previous operation, and had expected to encounter resistance when they began scaling the ridgeline along the spine of the island. As the Americans and Canadians continued to unload and move inland, they would not encounter any Japanese resistance for the duration, because they had, in fact, invaded a desert island. The Japanese, to U.S. intelligence' great embarrassment, evacuated two weeks earlier. Knowing that the island had effectively been cut off after the fall of Atu, Japanese leadership elected to undertake one mass movement to get all of their troops off the island. On July 29th, they brought in a fast-moving force of cruisers and destroyers, loaded up all 5,000 men on the island, and left, apparently without a trace because they were never detected by American aircraft or ships. The total lack of defenders did not mean the invasion was a bloodless affair, however. 21 soldiers died in a friendly fire incident, and 121 casualties were sustained either to injuries or cold weather. The Navy suffered 70 dead and wounded when a destroyer struck a mine. All told, 313 casualties were sustained in the operation until August 24th, when General Corlett declared the island secure. With Atu and Kiska both firmly back in American hands, the Alaskan theater and the far North Pacific quickly faded in terms of relative importance and priority. Both of the objectives of the campaign, to remove the northern approaches from contention and to drive the Japanese from American soil, had been achieved. An invasion of Japan via the northern route was never seriously considered, but that didn't mean the Japanese didn't defend against it. Despite the number of troops assigned to the Alaska theater dropping from a high of 144,000 to 63,000, the 11th Air Force continued to harass the Japanese in the Kuril Islands, serving as an ever-present reminder that American bases were only a few hundred miles away in the Aleutians, and forcing them to maintain a significant defensive force, including one-sixth of all their air strength. Though oft-forgotten as a backwater campaign, the battle for the Aleutians did have a tangible impact on the greater war effort. For one, considerable Japanese naval strength was frequently diverted to the North Pacific. The invasion of Atu occurred just before the invasion of New Georgia and the Solomon Islands. The Japanese had dispatched their 5th fleet from Truk in order to reinforce the North Pacific in the wake of losing Atu. This meant significantly less combat power was available to support the defenders in the Solomons, which one could argue was the more important theater. In the end, the Aleutian campaign is something of a curiosity in the Second World War. Over its roughly 18 months, there was only one major naval battle and one major land battle. 
His strategic aims were modest, simply to cut off a northern invasion route that was questionable to begin with, and reclaim a couple of uninhabited islands on the extreme edge of civilization. Once completed, the campaign's relevance evaporated and was quickly forgotten about for the much more consequential operations taking place in the Solomons and in the Mediterranean. Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily, would begin on June 9th. It's no wonder the Aleutian campaign is regarded as a forgotten backwater campaign when enormously impactful campaigns were taking place at essentially the same time. That in no way reduces the valor or heroism of the men who fought in the Aleutians, however. They did what their nation asked of them and endured conditions rivaled in no other theater. Their fight, though forgotten and eclipsed, deserves to be remembered and appreciated. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.